Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning we have with us Daniel Vargas. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're really happy to have you too. Um, Daniel and I have known each other for gosh many years. I'm not sure how many years, but uh, Daniel's trained in philosophy, got a graduate degree in philosophy. And Daniel, how did you get into philosophy? So that's interesting. So I, I, I didn't set out uh, to do philosophy. Uh, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, when I took philosophy undergrad, I hated it. Um, <laughs> but uh, wow. yeah, well, I think it, it was the structure of the class. I didn't hate so much philosophy itself. It was just one of these intro classes where they just, just threw the whole ocean at you in one shot. So it's like, okay, we're going to spend two weeks on metaphysics, two weeks on epistemology, two weeks on this. And it was just like, oh, what, what, like, what am I doing wrong here? Approach. That's the wrong approach, I think. Yeah, yeah it was bad. So I, I didn't leave with a very uh, positive view of studying <laughs> philosophy. Um, but then uh, after I finished my, my bachelor's, I'm trying to, get, uh, uh, trying to get into a master's program. And at first I was thinking, well, maybe I should do something like apologetics or something like that. And then I realized, well, apologetics is kind of like, philosophy of religion light so why not just do the real thing oh man we're uh, we're uh, upsetting all the apologetic people <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so basically uh, uh that's what led me in that route and then i started looking at schools and that led me to uh viola yeah all the apologetics people well, you know what you do is basically like a really shallow version of what we do but you know <laughs> Well, I wouldn't no, put it but, that way. No, I know, I know, I know. I know. That's my characterization. Danny's off the hook on that. Danny, um, but you went from a crappy experience for your undergrad philosophy to getting a ma how in the world do you think, oh yeah, I'm gonna get a master's in this now? I mean, where did you go to college? Uh, so I did my undergrad at Liberty. Um so I I, I so I have a weird uh academic background. So I, I, you know, graduated high school. I went right into college and I, I was doing uh, engineering. So I was doing electrical engineering at first. Uh, then I, I switched that out. I switched out to computer engineering, uh, but I was, you know, young and dumb. So I didn't go to class and I ended up flunking out. Uh, but I, yeah, I really liked what I was doing. I really liked computer science or like programming. So I just went and got a job somewhere. Uh, where they would hire me just doing like some intern nonsense. But I just made a career that way over the years, just getting crappy job after crappy job until eventually I got a job where someone said, somebody told me, I was like, oh, we won't, we won't make you do that. You're much too senior. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm senior? Really? <laughs> like, I didn't realize I had made it, you know? <laughs> wow. Well, and what powers came with this senior? Could you tell people to get coffee for you? Um, not quite. But definitely, I wasn't getting the, the, the crappy jobs or I wasn't having to go and fix anybody's monitor because it was dim anymore. I, uh, <laughs> I was strictly doing, you know, software engineering at that point. So you uh, failed out, but you passed enough to get your degree? Yeah. yeah. So basically, I so the, the, the couple of computer science classes I took, I, I loved them so much. I went beyond the material. Like I actually went through the entire book that they gave us before the class was even over. And I was like, I want more. 
Um, so I just went and started looking for Mo Brooks. This was in the time where, well, uh, this is pre-Google. So uh, we're talking like, you know, late 90s. You're an old uh, man. I am an old man. I am 40, I'll be 42 this year. So did they even have Yahoo back then? Yeah, Yahoo was like just starting out, I think. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think that was like the only major search. It was Yahoo and like MSN. It was like the only real search engine. Oh, there was another one, Alta Vista, I think it was called, which is like completely defunct now. But yeah, so there was no Google. So it was basically like, I'm going to like uh, my local Barnes and Nobles and go to the, you know, the computer science section and pick up some books. Um, no Amazon either. <laughs> so uh, I was actually going to physical uh, brick and mortar store for books. Yeah. But yeah, I just started uh, just just became ravenous, right? I just wanted, uh, I just read as much as I could on this and I would come home. And even that, as I worked, I would come home and do it. So I would go, I'd go to work. And then when I was done with work, I would come home and just do projects for myself and just kept you know, grinding and doing it. And I kind of just put my head down and did it for years. And then eventually, I, I, I guess all of this, uh, uh, you know, like knowledge just kind of coalesced and I had kind of made it to a certain level where other people could recognize that I, I actually knew something for a change. <laughs> so you got uh, your degree and what was it that you finally got your degree in? So eventually I just got, I just got a degree in religion from, uh, from bachelor's, a bachelor's in religion from uh, Liberty University. Uh, I just did it online. I lived in, it was living in New Jersey, you know, Liberty is down in Virginia. Uh, but uh, I could do it online. So it was something that I could do while I was working and doing everything else. Uh, it took me a while. Um, you know, I had a couple kids in between. So it, it, it took me quite a bit to, uh, to get my bachelor's. But uh, once I did it, it was kind of like, well, I'm going to do something else. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm on a roll here. Might as well keep it going. So that's when I found uh, Viola. <clears throat> Sorry um, for clearing my throat there. Um, how did how did Liberty get on on your radar? Because that's kind of a far. Well, I mean, you know, Virginia and and New Jersey aren't exactly right next to each other. So yeah, um, I think at the time I was I was looking at the schools, uh, and I, I looked at schools in the area, but obviously there was the, the time commitment, the fact that you know at the time. Uh, you know, working full time, had a family with you know a couple of young kids. Uh, well, I had one kid at the time, and I think uh, another one was born soon after. So I I couldn't dedicate the time to like just go sit in a classroom. So I started looking. Well, are there any online programs? Uh, so I started just kind of now, now. At this point, there was Google, so I was able to Google this, um, and I saw that uh, Liberty at the time was was voted one of the top schools for online learning. I think they were, they were kind of like a pioneer in the space, apparently. Um, not a lot of schools were really doing this uh, where they had like full-time programs, like you could do the entire, you could do the entire program online. Um, so I found Liberty and it was like convenient. Um, for a private university, it wasn't super expensive. Um, so I, it just kind of worked out for me. Okay, makes sense. What year was that um, that they had already so, developed that? I started, uh, I think it was summer 2009. Okay. Yeah. Online learning really, they must've really been cutting edge because mm -hmm. I got certified to teach online for the first time in 2009. And yeah, I remember exactly. the philosophy. So they were really... Yeah. I, I, I remember the, I was the first philosophy faculty to be certified to teach online at one of the colleges I was at Moorpark college. And everybody was looking at me like I had some kind of, 
cut i was just cutting edge or something like that of course i didn't feel that way at all i i thought that this is the end of civilization (laughs) but uh i don't know i mean i know you personally so i feel like well maybe online education is not so bad if it lets people like daniel go to to college i mean i can imagine what you were dealing with as far as your uh schedule and stuff uh was it really that helpful to be able to go online did it did you feel like you benefited from that so i I think certain classes yes honestly i think with with online education for probably this is probably true of even in-person education i think a lot has to do with the individual how much you want it how much you want to be there right this was me coming back to school now in my late 20s uh for something I wanted to study and I wanted to be there, right? So this this wasn't even me trying to get a career out of this. This was just, hey, I, I want knowledge for myself. So uh, I was I was motivated yeah. to do this, right? Yeah. I wasn't just some kid who's like, parents are making them go to college and they're just like taking online classes just because it's like what requires the least amount of work. Uh, but really it was just because I, I needed to support my family and I had to, I had to work a, you know, a nine to five. And this allowed me to actually get the formal studies while being doing on my own schedule. And so you were working in computers mm-hmm. on, without a degree. Mm-hmm. That's how good you were, apparently. I mean, you um, knew enough to be able to get a job doing something. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think uh, it's, it's computer science is one of those really interesting fields where ha- having a degree uh, does not necessarily mean you're good. Uh, and not having one does not mean you're not good, right? Uh, I've I've been at jobs where this, before I even got my bachelor's, I've, I've been at jobs where essentially all I had was a high school diploma. And I remember interviewing people with PhDs uh, in computer science who knew nothing, right? Uh, I mean, wow. they, they knew some very narrow wow. kind of obscure thing that they studied, right? And they did some project on but they had no idea how to, how, to, how to make things work in the real world. You know, they, you know, there's, there's a, there's a joke in, uh, for computer scientists. It's like, you know, you, you, you've never cut your teeth until you've, uh, you've overridden a bunch of files in a database in a, in a, in a production uh, database, right? That's live. Like, that's when you know, you, that's when you know you're a programmer, when you've made like a really bad mistake and you have to roll it back like on the fly or your, and your job is on the line. Uh, that's how you know you've made it. So these are people who went to school, they kept going to school, but they've never done it in the field. So, and, and I'm not disparaging anyone from going to school for computer science or anything like that, but there, there's a certain amount of experience that you can only get on the job. You're never gonna get it from just going to school and learning from you know, books and professors. So it's definitely That's one of those kind of unique fields, I think. Like I wouldn't want that from a from a from a surgeon, right? I don't want a surgeon who's like, "Hey, I learned, I learned to something else." Yeah, yeah. Have you ever walked back one of your mistakes in the during surgery, there, Mister Surgeon? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you were a programmer. Were you? Yeah, a I'm a programmer. Okay. Yeah, I'm a programmer. Uh, I don't so. even know what that means, to be honest with you. I think I have a really fred flintstone type of view of what it is probably compared to what you you're you know about it yeah so i mean essentially i make computers do things that i want them to do i mean that, that is honestly what, what a programmer does right you you know how to write in these computer programming languages 
Um, and essentially you're issuing commands to the computer to do things, uh, to solve certain problems, you know. Um, it's interesting because most people think like, uh, they think programming and they think to movies they've watched where they show some hacker and the dude is just like banging on the keys like a million miles a minute, like, you know, and like, oh, that's a hacker. And it's like anyone who's done any computer science are like, what's he doing? <laughs> He's gonna ruin his keyboard. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of programming is me literally just staring at the ceiling and like coming up with a way to solve a problem in the most efficient manner, right? Uh, uh, it's, it's a lot of uh, problem solving and, and critical thinking involved in this. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Yeah, which interestingly enough, going into philosophy, it was, uh, uh, wasn't that hard of a transition actually. It, like I remember taking logic and just sit there like, oh, this is, this is just what I do for a living. <laughs> I mean, this is just kind of what I do, but it's just, I apply it. I don't have like, you know, uh, I didn't know all the symbolic stuff, but this is just kind of what I do. Gotcha. Okay. Who did you have logic with? I took it with uh, Tim Pickpants. Tim. Oh, wait. Mm -hmm. Did you take that at the graduate level or the undergrad? Yeah. Oh, uh, graduate. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. I guess he's now yeah. like the interim dean over there. Can you believe that? Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's, he's uh, raised the, risen up the ranks, right? <laughs> I guess so. He must have a house payment. <laughs> no i i'm i'm hurt i'm sure he's doing a great job uh yeah. now so <clears throat> you're like a renaissance guy basically then i mean you you have these um insatiable this insatiable curiosity about computers you have obviously some kind of facility probably some inborn talent and you've refined that over uh, many years of experience and, and trial and error and all that stuff. But then you also have this uh, deep desire to learn more about religion and philosophy and stuff like that. That's not really exactly required for your job. Mm -hmm. What's that sourced in? Um, I mean, I was raised in church. Um, my parents are actually pastors. Um, but uh, we came from a uh, kind of a fundamentalist sort of uh, background. Uh, very kind of uh, don't ask too many questions, don't think too hard about this sort of things. Uh, anti-intellectual. Very anti-intellectual. Yeah. Uh, in, in a weird way, though. So anti-intellectual about religious matters, not about uh, secular matters. Yeah. Right. So go to school and become a doctor, become a lawyer, do all these things, mm. but don't don't study too much when it comes to the Bible. Um, Man, that, so, is, that sounds exactly like the church I grew up in. Holy cow. That's funny. Yeah. Did you guys speak in tongues? Yeah. Yeah. Was it Pentecostal? Yeah. Pentecostal. Oh, that's exactly like that is so weird that yeah. I was able to predict that. Yeah. So so it's kind of this this weird dichotomy where it's, uh, it's very like ad hoc anti-intellectualism. Um, and that just didn't sit, sit well with me because, again, I have this, this ravenous uh, need to understand and, uh, you know, like deeply understand what I believe. And um, I, it, was, it was never satisfying to me. I always, always remember having questions. And I remember uh, even growing up, some of the traditions, I, I think, uh, that were kind of, I would call them extra biblical, um, that uh, I, I just, you know, especially like a lot of the do's and don'ts where I'm just like, all right, I'm, I'm reading my Bible and like, I just don't, like, where, where does this come from? 
Like, can I, can I get an answer? And they're just like, well, this is just the way we do things. Oh, okay, but why do we do that? Where did it come from? Um, and it's like, well, no, 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 you don't, don't ask me the questions. You're going to lose your faith. You're going to, you, you won't ever have a, you know, and then they have these flashy words. You won't have anointing or all these other terms if you ask too many questions. And I remember thinking like, uh, but okay, can I just get a definition here though? Like, <laughs> so I remember uh, thinking, well, I, I just, I got to study this. I, I got to, I, I, it's not enough for me just to like get it from somebody with, and, and, and not be able to see this for myself. Like, you know, I, I, I need to get at the heart of this stuff. So you're a little kid like this where, where your pat, the pastors, were they your parents? Yeah. Oh, that's a different dynamic than I had. There yeah, was, was, a, there was one layer, you know, the pastor was one layer removed from me because he wasn't a part of our family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I kind of always blamed it on him and <laughs> them, you know, but that's got to be really frustrating if you're anything like me to have deep questions and puzzles and just stuff. And you feel like people don't take your questions seriously. Yeah, I, I remember... I mean, I had my uh, wild child rebellious stage, you know, in my teens and uh, into my early 20s, where uh, I, I would go to church because it was uh, a requirement for continuing to live under my parents' roof. Uh, so I didn't want to have to go pay rent. <laughs> so I would go to church. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't at all a Christian in any meaningful sense of that word. Um, but yeah, it, it was the dynamic was interesting. And again, fascinating because my parents themselves, they were professionals in their country, right? So my parents were born in the, the they were born in the Dominican Republic. My dad uh, was a physician; he was a doctor, and my mom was a, a high school teacher. Um, and they actually moved to Venezuela in the seventies, uh, in the time when Venezuela was a very, very prosperous country, and they were inviting professionals from all over Latin America to like basically they had more more jobs than they had professionals to fill these jobs. So we go all over Latin America inviting people to come and work there. So my parents yeah. moved there. Um, I've heard of that era of Venezuela and it seems like a different universe. Night and day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. yeah. Wow. But uh, I remember growing up and my parents always, they, they always fostered my, my sense of curiosity. Uh, my mom would teach me like my mom taught me how to read and write before I even got to preschool. Uh, just because I, I just wanted to learn. I was always interested in things. So they fostered the curiosity, but then it was like only to a certain point, right? When it went to certain matters, the curiosity wasn't as much accepted. So there was like that kind of interesting dichotomy for me, uh, which again, as a kid, you don't really understand. You're just kind of like, right. oh, okay. Was there a but, shame involved? Like, were you, did you, uh, not not saying that that would be their conscious thing, but I'm just saying, did you feel shame for having interests and curiosity that went beyond what was allowed? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I felt shame. I think the responses would be because it, they would they would have like the the type of responses were like these shutdown responses, right? Where it was just kind of like uh, like this is just a brute fact, right? And the, you just can't you can't analyze this any further. So again, as a kid, you kind of say, oh, okay. Like, we, we, I think more because you, you realize that you're not going to get anything more. You can't press the subject anymore. Um, so I wouldn't say that there was shame. And, and, and I, you know, I don't want to make, make it seem like my parents ever shamed me for being curious uh, because I don't think I ever felt that. 
but there was just like this kind of hard stops. There was like, well, this can't just can't be approved any further. It's just, it's a faith matter, right? So you just can't, yeah, there was a, a, a right. certainly a, a divorce between faith and reason uh, in, in the way that things were approached. Gotcha. Did you ever push those boundaries and did you ever get resistance if you did? As I got older, uh, I think I, I pushed the, the boundaries a little more. Um, and uh, push them, and, and I did face resistance. And I think what I, I think at that time, though, I, I just kind of said, okay, well, I'm not going to get the answers here, so I, I'll just find the answers for myself, right? Um, like I, I was, so I, I was the uh, I was a quiet rebel, so I was the one who'd be like to your face, I'm just like, man, I'm going to go rebel <laughs> over there. Uh, so yeah. I've never been kind of confrontational in that sense. So I would just say, okay, whatever, then I'll just go, gotcha. you know see where I can find these answers. Yeah. So that somehow led you into apologetics right away or did. So my experience with apologetics was interesting. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, this, this individual has uh, been uh, obviously disgraced, but um, I remember being uh, maybe early. Oh, I think I know who you're going to say. Yeah. So it's probably uh, about 19. I think I remember I used to drive, uh, to, uh, my parents would go or before me to church and I would drive to church. I remember on this local radio station on Sunday mornings, this gentleman would come on and they would have him speak on the faith. But he would speak in like this very eloquent and intellectual way that was just, uh, it's not something I was accustomed to. Um, for some reason, are, the show are you talking about Ravi Zacharias? Yes, it was Ravi Zacharias. That's what I was thinking. Um, he was very good. He was very yeah, he was good, good at what he know. did. That's right. And, and I remember at the time, there was no other voices I had ever heard of, uh, especially within my context, who could speak to the faith in such an intellectual way. Um, and then I remember years, uh, I, I, the, the show went off the air for some reason. I'd never heard of him again until years later, where it was like, I, I, I ran into it and I saw him and I was like, oh, this is the guy I used to listen to, you know? And, and that kind of uh, uh, sparked an interest in me in saying, wait, he can't be the only one then there have to be other people who are speaking to this and, and speaking and, and, and thinking about faith and reason and all these things. And that kind of started my, my journey into kind of getting into the intellectual side of the faith. Okay. That makes sense. So you're, you fail out of college in your early twenties, right? You go to work. Do I have this right? Yeah. Feel about 19. About 19. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So you go to work and you go to work in computers pretty early. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of experience. You're getting into your mid and late twenties and you're thinking, I want more training. I want a degree. Mm-hmm. You snoop around online. You find Liberty. Liberty happens to have some training in the area you want and it's online. It's, it's accessible to you now in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hop through Joe Biden's uh, little encampment there in Delaware. <laughs> you can go you straight to Virginia classroom online. Uh, I got that right so far. Yep. All of, what was your favorite class that you took at uh, Liberty online? So, so it's, so it's interesting. It's going to be a, probably not with your respect. So my favorite class was actually an evangelism class uh, and, and missions class. Um, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. So, so how did I put it? So, well, I, at the time, one of the reasons I actually went to school was because uh, it was sort of expected that I was going to succeed my father 
as the pastor of the church he was in? And again, I have I have all these questions. I have, I have all, all these kind of uh, uh, yeah, un unanswered questions, really. And I'm thinking, okay, I need, I need to study. I need to get some of this for, for myself. And while I'd always helped out in the church and, you know, been involved in various forms of ministry, I wasn't convinced that this was for me. Um, and I remember taking this class and it was a, no, it wasn't an evangelist class. It was a, I think it was a leadership class or missions class, something like that. And I remember one of the things that the professor said in the lecture kind of stuck with me, has always stuck with me. He said this, he said, if you're considering vocational ministry, right? Um, ask yourself this question. If you can see, or, or, or think of this statement. If you can see yourself doing anything else, then do that instead. If you're considering vocational ministry, but you can see yourself doing something else, you should probably do that instead. You should only do vocational ministry if it is the only thing you can imagine doing. This is your life's calling. You feel it, that the Lord is prompting you in this direction. You feel that, you know, the burning in the bosom, <laughs> so to speak, uh, then, then, this, then this is for you. But if you have all these doubts and you have all these things that you probably rather do, and this is just kind of like, a, uh, then don't, don't do it. Or, or it's either not for you or it's not the time for you. And that's something that, that was very impactful for me, I think. Uh, because again, I'm, I'm sitting there with all these doubts and, and I'm thinking, you know, do I do this? Do I not do this? And, you know, here, along comes this professor who doesn't know me, right? I'm not, this isn't live. I'm watching a, you know, a lecture and, and says this. And it's just, it, it really impacted me because to be honest, there was a whole lot of things I think I would rather have done than got into vocational ministry. Um, not because I think there's anything wrong with it. It's just, I didn't feel called to it. Um, so then that further led me to say, well, then I want to keep studying. Uh, I want to keep, you know, doing some things in this area because I, I, I like the faith uh, or I like the intellectual parts of the faith. And I want to like, I really want to deepen myself in that. And that's really, and that led me, uh, uh, you know, along the path down to Biola. Wow. That's very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. What, when was it that you had the idea to do a master's degree in person and uproot yourself from, and your family, right? Cause mm -hmm. you had a family. Yeah. You had two kids. Is that right? Yeah. Two kids. Okay. Yeah. And you, New Jersey isn't exactly close to Biola. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so to do an in-person philosophy graduate program, how, how did that process look in your mind? Yeah. So I think uh, I finished the, I finished the, the bachelor's. I remember, you know, you know, finishing my last classes and then thinking, okay, what's next, right? Uh, kind of said I had the bug. I, I, I wanted to learn some more. And, you know, I, I, I took a lot of the theology classes, all these things, but I, I wanted some more of the, that deep intellectual thinking. So like I said, I, I started thinking, well, let me do something, maybe apologetics. And I, and I looked at Liberty to see what kinds of programs they had. And I remember uh, that they didn't really have any masters in apologetics at, at the time. Um, uh, they had something like a, a doctorate in theology and apologetics, uh, but that's, it didn't sound like a, what I wanted to do. So I started looking at other schools to see what was around that, um, that I could do online. Uh, and I think I, looked at, uh, I think I looked at Regent University um, and, and a couple others. 
but none of the programs were kind of jumping out at me. So then I started doing some more searching and saying, you know, well, is a master's online as good? You know, um, and, and then, you know, obviously that most people said, no, uh, you're, you're going to, you know, be uh, benefited by being in person, get to know your professors, you've been able to ask questions, you know, um, then I was looking at, okay, let me look at apologetics programs that are not online. So I think I saw, uh, where's the one in Texas that uh, Norm Geisler was in? I forgot the school. Um, I can't I remember. Oh, you mean at tech in t- back in Texas? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Norm da- Geisler Dallas was there. Seminary? Yeah. yeah da- I think Dallas, because then Norm Geisler went and found his own school, but I think, I think it was yeah. Dallas Theological yeah. Seminary uh, had a program. Uh, I remember looking at one in, I think it was in Chicago. Uh, what's the name of the one in Chicago? It's completely escaping uh, Trinity. Me. Trinity. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, then I found Biola, right? These were like the top rated programs in the nation. Um, you know, and I'm looking and I'm like, okay, well, uh, I was looking at apologetic programs. Then uh, I, I look at the apologetics programs and these different things, I'm comparing them. Then I just say, well, let me do a little search. And I, I don't know how I found this one article that was like, well, if you're considering doing an MA on apologetics, when, is, when do you consider doing one in philosophy instead? Like, well, why would I want to do that? So I kind of start, you know, following this whole uh, breadcrumb until I realized, hey, maybe I do want to do philosophy. Maybe I, I want to get, because the last thing I wanted to do was go get a master's and then still feel like I have all these unanswered questions uh, that, that just didn't go deep enough. So that's what that led me well let me look at philosophy and i realized well Bala also has a philosophy program and it's like really highly rated and you know uh, one of the things you could do is you could go and get a, a phd if you wanted to in the future so that that kind of cemented it for me but uh then like you said uh okay california new jersey kind of far from each other uh, i need to be able to f- feed my family uh so that's how, how that's how's that going to happen so uh, there was a lot of things that had to kind of fall into place so I literally just kind of prayed and said, okay, if this is what you want me to do, Lord, all right, I, I'm just going to apply and see what happens. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to talk to my job and see if they'd let me work from home for all the time and see if they'd be okay with me going and doing this master's across the country. And I'm going to talk to my family and see if they don't completely freak out about me leaving. So I kind of just had all these things that just seemed kind of impossible and they just all lined up. Right, one after another. I, I went to my job. I had to fill up a bunch of paperwork and get like permission from like people like three, four levels above me. And it went through and I got permission. Uh, you know, I talked to my family and they were like, well, if this is what you feel you need to do. Go ahead, go for it. Uh, you know, I got accepted into the program at Biola and it was just like, okay, uh, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> so things just kind of lined up that way. Wow, you must. Uh be very well liked at your job they must they must have a lot of faith in you yeah it was it was uh, you know i mean my job was uh at that point i've been at a job a thing a couple of years or maybe a year or two and uh that job was always very lax and you know we actually worked from home about three days a week and then went into the office twice a week um so it, it was it was it wasn't like uh, okay at least my, my argument was yeah i'm just asking for two more days right <laughs> i'm already working from home three days a week um and my boss was okay with it he he like he liked my you know the work that i did um and you know he was happy with my, with my work and he uh he, he signed off on it and then we just went up a couple of chains and uh, i think part of so I, I worked for an education company i actually still work for the same company 
Um, and one of the things that uh, one of the things that I said was like, well, you know, I, I think I'd be interested in teaching eventually. And so, so that was kind of like the, the appeal we made. So they're, you know, kind of like going up the chain. They're like, well, you know, can we really say no to this guy as, as an education company who wants to get into education? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I think that, 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 that makes of, sense. Uh, appeal helped. That makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so now I'm curious about you're working five days a week. Um, did you have Zoom back then or how are, are you doing meetings on Google Hangout or Skype or what are you using? Yeah. That? So at the or time is it, we're using... are, is it really meetings? Is it all through email or is it phone or what? No, we do meetings. So we do a, what is called a stand-up meeting. So it's a daily meeting where we kind of give a, a, a status report on uh, what we're working on. I think that one of the things that helped was that um, our team has always been a distributed team. So, uh, so the, the, the main developers were all in this office in New Jersey. However, our product uh, managers are all over the place. So like one's in London, one's in, I think, Minnesota or Wisconsin or something out there. Um, so our team, our, our, our larger team has always been pretty distributed. So I have, I have people on my team I've worked with for nine, 10 years that I've never met in person. Uh, so, uh, and then on top of that, we added a team uh, out in Sri Lanka who was supporting us uh, basically uh, when we were off, they were working and they would manage some things. So basically most of our, all of our meetings, even when we went to the office, we would still have a, a, this kind of virtual meeting happening uh, because we had people who just couldn't physically be there. So uh, we've always kind of run the team that way. So it, it was just an extension of that. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years later, so the, the company decided to consolidate a bunch of offices they had uh, into this one brand new larger building, but it was very far away from most people. So my entire team just started working from home. So everybody on my team works from home now, 100%. So it's uh, it just became the status quo. Gotcha. Now, but how did you fit coursework in though? I mean- um, Hard, very hard. <laughs> how many classes were you taking every semester? So I was taking a full load every semester. So I Whoa. think- uh, that was... So how are- how, how do you do the eight hours? How do you put the eight hours in? Or I mean, assuming so I was working that's a, I was working to shift this uh, schedule. So I would log in in the morning really early, check out my email uh, from the night before, do some things. Then I would head to class because I would have some classes during the day. Uh, then I would uh, I would finish some classes. I would log back in. I would have my computer with me. Uh, I would log back in, do some, do, do a couple of things. Then I go back to whatever classes I had. Then I'd come home, you know, spend a little time with the family, and then I'd work and study into the night. Uh, so I didn't get a whole lot of sleep <laughs> during those couple of years. Yeah, how um, much sleep did you get? Not a lot. Uh, you know, maybe five, six hours a night, uh, especially during the semester. There were some very, very mm -hmm. long weekends and, you know, having to, uh, you know, obviously jump headfirst into the philosophy. I remember my first philosophy course was metaphysics with J.P. Moreland. And I remember thinking, I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> I don't yeah. understand the word. I hear words. Yeah. They sound like English. I, I, I know what some of these words are. But when you put them together that way, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, it, speaking, it took a while. Of, speaking of English, how long have you spoken English? Because your first language is Spanish, right? Yeah. So I got here when I was uh, eight, about okay. eight going on nine. Did you speak so, any English when you got here? No, I didn't speak any English. Really? So I learned by full uh, immersion. Basically, I got thrown into a school district where there were no Spanish speakers other than my cousin. 
Um, wow. No professor, none of the teachers spoke it, the Spanish, sorry, uh, Spanish. None of the, none of the teachers spoke Spanish. Uh, only, so uh, there was no, like, uh, you know, like some places have ESL, like they have English as a second language mm -hmm. or things like that. There was no program like that in the school that I was in. This is a public school? This is a public school, but it was a, a school district that was, uh, I mean, the population was like 95% Caucasian and Jewish. Uh, in I think in it, New Jersey, in New Jersey. Yeah. So there was this like one other black girl in the school. What's the name of the town? It's called Fairlawn. Okay. I'm sure I'm sure the demographics have changed over time. But at the time, it was all basically all white um, and, and Jewish. So we got like the Jewish holidays off in that school district. Were, were you traumatized? Oh, you got the Jewish uh, holidays off. Oh, that, yeah. that says a lot. So was, <laughs> it across, was it across the river? Was it across from New York? I don't know where it is. Um, Fairline is North New Jersey. Yeah, so it's like across the river. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's maybe a half hour, probably less from New York. Um, so not very far. Um, yeah, but it was, it was basically a pocket where it's like you drive, literally you drive five minutes and you're like in like uh, an area that's predominantly black and Hispanic. So it was just like a pocket that was like pretty much all white and, and Jewish people. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically I was in class uh, nobody, nobody could speak to me. Yeah. And, um, and do you have any memories of that? Being I do. Confused? I have some interesting memories of that. Uh, I remember, um, uh, I remember under, like, I remember not understanding things at the time, but rem having them, remembering them later and realizing what it was that was happening. So, because that, then at that point I could remember, and then I, I knew what the heck they were saying. So I remember that, uh, I remember going to class in the first few days and people talking to me really slow. And I remember being, yeah, I was like nine years old and, and thinking like, it doesn't matter how slow you say it, I don't know the word, right? They, they come up to me and say, take out your notebook. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, speed isn't the problem here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know the vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is so um, funny, man. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience. I can't believe that. So do you know the story of why your parents came here and how they got Yeah, here? I do. I do, actually. We'll go so, back to, uh, we'll get back to metaphysics with JP momentarily. <laughs> We're just taking a sidestep here because I realized we've skipped that. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so my, so my dad, uh, like I said, my parents had moved to Venezuela uh, and they were uh, living there. You know, they lived there seven years, I think. Uh no, sorry. They lived in 13 years. I think they lived in almost 13 years. That's what it was. What um, city so, was it that they lived? So we lived in a very small, they lived in three different towns. The okay. largest ones of those was called Mene Grande. Um, <clears throat> in say, say it again. Mene Grande. M-E-N-E -E, and then G-R-A-N-D-E. Um, it's uh, So for so, so, those who might not know, uh, Venezuela is very oil rich. So outside of our town, there were uh, oil fields where the oil would literally burst from the ground and you would see it burning up on the, in the sun. That's how much oil there was in the area where I grew up. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, that was the, the town that I remember the most because it was the last one we lived in. Uh, but at the time, my dad hadn't seen his family in a very long time. Um, and his, his mom, his father, and all 14 of his brothers and sisters had moved to the United States and had all become United States citizens. So he was the only one who had never been 
and, uh, uh, and you know, had nothing. So at the time, my, my grandfather uh, got diagnosed with, uh, I think it was tongue cancer, I think it was. Um, and my dad hadn't seen him in very long, so he wanted to see him before he passed. So we, uh, you know, we petitioned to get the tourist visas, and we got, the, we got denied because they said, no, you have way too much family uh, in, in the United States. Just have them petition you for a residency, for a green card. So my grandmother petitioned my dad and, and you know, by proxy me and my mom for a, a, a green card. So we come here not to move, but to visit, uh, to, you know, spend some time here, get to, get to know our, our friend, for me to get to know my family. I, I knew almost nobody in my family. And, uh, you know, for my dad to see his dad before he passed. So we, what, we get what here. year was that? Do you think this was the 1989? Yeah, 1989. So we, we get here. Um, you know, we uh, me and my mom we get our paperwork. Um, you know, we, I guess we we were living with my aunt at the time in her basement, and my dad is sitting there, and my dad doesn't get his paperwork, so he can't leave the country because if he leaves, he can't he can't come back in. You know, so he, me and my my mom is traveling back and forth to manage some of their stuff you know they they had a house my dad had a private practice um you know so a bunch of stuff and so that's at that time was when they enrolled me in school because it's like well we're here you know let's enroll in the school um so my dad who who was a physician a very uh, successful physician uh in his town uh is here doing nothing so he's like i think he was delivered he, he got a job delivering newspapers at 4 a.m in the morning for like the um uh, not the times uh I, I forget i forget which paper it was it was some big paper at the time. So he was literally just like, like a, like a newspaper delivery board, just at 4am in the morning, like tossing papers into people's lawns and stuff like that, just to do something with his time. Um, and then at that time, uh, my dad felt the urge to, uh, like he felt, you know, he says he felt like the Lord calling him to full-time vocational ministry. Um, and uh, he got offered a, a small church to pastor here. So uh, one thing led to another, they ended up selling everything. Uh, also at the time, wow, Venezuela crashed. That's the, about that year. I think I think it was late '89 or early '90 when the currency crashed in Venezuela. Mm. So before that, the currency I think was like four to one to the dollar. So it was like four something uh, of Venezuelan bolivares. Uh, that was the, the currency to one dollar. So it was very close. It, it stayed there, but apparently, it's a lot of corruption, and uh, it, it had stayed that way because of uh, just some shady things that the presidents had been doing. So all of that stuff came out and the currency just crashed. Uh, so my parents ended up losing pretty much everything. Wow. Um, because one day they ended up selling their home, which cost them, I don't know how much money to make. You know, they got like uh, not even a 10th of that once, you know, they, they, uh, you know, mm. they converted the currency. Oh. So uh, they ended up having to basically start from zero in their forties. Wow. Uh, you know, so our forties, thirties, I can't remember how they were. Wow. Uh, but yeah. They basically and they didn't zero speak here. any English. Did they speak English at all? Not really. My my parents wow. didn't really speak English. So, um, yeah. So it, it was you know I mean they they started pastoring a uh, Spanish speaking church. Mm. So um, you know obviously that helped. Um, and eventually, uh, I think five years later, uh, my dad became a citizen. Uh, at that time, I was fifteen, I think, or fourteen, going on fifteen. So I I don't know if the laws are the same, but at the time. If you were less than 16 years old and one of your parents became a citizen, you basically could automatically get citizenship. So all you had to do was like basically go sign your name somewhere. So gotcha. I remember going through that process and then becoming a citizen so that I could apply for scholarships uh, for college. Ah, uh, cool. Now, 
obviously you missed the whole Chavez era and the guy before him. Yeah. yeah. The socialism and all that. I don't know how much socialism was there in Venezuela at the time um, in the eighties, but uh, you obviously are pro- probably pretty sad about missing that, missing out on that aspect of Venezuela, the whole Chavez. Oh yeah. yeah. No, You're a socialist, devastated. right? Oh yeah, absolutely. We're and, just assuming uh, you're a socialist. Viva, viva che, you know. Because uh, you're from uh, New Jersey. <laughs> but, uh, but um, wow, that's. Do you have it? When you see what what's happened in Venezuela, do you have any emotions about that? Well, it's it's definitely sad to see what happened. Uh, we have. So uh, there was a a lady who left with my parents. Who was my parents' friend. We actually moved to Venezuela at the same time my parents did in, in the uh, uh, mid seventies, I think it was. Um, so she she went moved first. She was also a, a physician, a doctor, and then her family moved. So she had, I think it was six kids, all older than me, um, and her husband. So they all moved to Venezuela, and uh, we when we left, they actually stayed. So they lived through the entire uh, Chavez era. And interestingly, some of them were uh, uh, Chavez supporters in the beginning. Um, and they, they, uh, they quickly <laughs> repented from, uh, that as they began to see what happened to the country. Um, basically it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's a very complicated matter. It's obviously socialism was, was a, a, just a plague, but the country itself was basically on a downturn before that because of the rampant corruption, uh, from the previous uh, leaderships. I think, uh, I can't remember the name of President uh, Carlos Andres Perez, I think was the one of the previous presidents who was like a complete crook. Um, so he, he basically bankrupted the country. So then Chavez basically rose to power. He was a military guy, rose to power uh, by promising basically, uh, I'm going to you know give out houses, I'm going to give out food. Um, and he eventually did do some of these things by, uh, for example, if you have two homes, they would uh, confiscate one of them. The government would just come and take one. And then give it away to somebody else. Um, uh, if you had businesses, you know they would they would uh, levy all kinds of things. Um, one of the one of these this lady that I mentioned, one of her children, he he was a, 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 a I guess he was like a chemical engineer, and uh, but he specialized in uh, you know petroleum because uh, obviously you know it's, it's a big field over there. Apparently, he he signed some petition at the time, uh, kind of denouncing one of Chavez's uh, uh, policies, and he got blacklisted. So he couldn't find work, even like you know, uh, in a car wash. Like he got, he he lost his job that he had, a very, you know, a well-paying job at the time, and then he found some other very rinky-dink job just to f- afford to live. And when they found, like, eventually they found out that he was on the list, and they fired him from there too. So he actually ended up coming here and and uh, under a um, uh, what's what's the name of that uh, petition? Uh, asylum. He came under a political asylum because basically, you know, if you can't afford, you can't work, and the government is preventing you from working because of a dissenting opinion. That's essentially persecution. So, um, you know, he eventually came here, and I think he eventually got citizenship here, and he's, uh, I believe, he's living in Texas somewhere, working working well now. But yeah, I, I saw, I know stories. I didn't see it for myself, but I know a lot of people who still live there, and who saw. You know uh, that you know the average uh, Venezuelan citizen lost like you know an average of 20, 30 pounds, not because they found some amazing diet, but because there was no there was uh, such food shortages. My goodness. Um, 
you know, people going, you know, six, seven months without being able to eat meat, oh not gosh. because they've gone vegan, but because they literally was no meat to eat. Wow. Um, so uh, it was, it was terrible. I think it's, it's normalized a little, <clears throat> it's definitely not going back to something that it's uh, desirable, but I, I think some, some of the craziness is normalized a little, but it's still pretty bad. It's an amazing story. Where did your parents get their training? Um, so my, my parents, uh, 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 how should I call it? They went to college at, uh, oh my God, the name is, it's, I know the initials, it's UAS. Uh, the, uh, I think the transition with the, the autonomous university of, uh, of Santo Domingo or something like that. Okay. I, I can't remember, but basically they both went to the same school, same college. It's like a public college in, in Dominican Republic. Gotcha. Uh, and my dad, you know, he studied uh, to be a physician. My mom studied to be a teacher. And your dad got his medical degree. His yeah. Doctor? He had a medical degree. He practiced yeah. in, 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 in the, in the Dominican Republic. Then he went to Venezuela and he practiced there, but he had to do uh, some further start studies because uh, because when you go from one country to another, I think from, from medical degrees, you can't just go and practice. You have to go and basically, I think, redo like your residency or something. Mm. Uh, so I remember him, my dad being gone for long periods of time when I was really small uh, to yeah, you know sure. finish that up. Wow. That. That's a, that's a lot to take in, especially the, the picture of all those people that supported Chavez and then figured out they made a mistake, but it was too late. Yeah. It's too late to do anything about it. And that really is uh, s- such a common story <laughs> with uh, people that support socialism. Mm-hmm. So you're in uh, Southern California in JP's metaphysics class and you're working full-time. You have two kids. You're, mm-hmm. I cannot even imagine how you were feeling at that point. Uh, maybe tell people what JP's metaphysics class is like. I mean, <laughs> it's not Barnes and Noble metaphysics. It's not like crystals and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's not that yeah. kind of metaphysics, right? Uh, this is a, the study of, uh, I guess, uh, reality if you want to put it that way um it's uh some of you described it this way and i think it's it's probably the most apt description it's like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant that is what jp's by the physics class sounds right (laughs) sounds about right yep imagine the picture where you open a fire hydrant and you're trying to drink out of this torrent of water where you can't even breathe that is what taking this class was like (laughs) it was it was it was rough. I remember uh, my first couple of weeks thinking I made a horrible mistake. Uh, I just moved my family over here for nothing. I am going to fail this class. <laughs> but you know, eventually you do the work, and, and it's and it starts to crystallize in your head, right? Eventually, words start to make sense. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is vocabulary because it's a it's a vocab rich field, like anything else is. Um, mm-hmm. There's a very specific way of getting at what you're talking about. And sometimes the vocab is everything hinges on it because mm-hmm. a lot of times there's disagreement about what those words mean or what's implied. And uh, there's a lot of reading. The reading is, is dense. You know, wouldn't you describe it that way? It's like, Oh my goodness. Wading through wet concrete. I remember reading through a page uh, of I think it was Roderick Chisholm, uh, and 
literally reading this page and then reading it again. I think I read it almost like almost five times and still not understanding a word and, and thinking like, what is happening? Like I, 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 I speak English, like what is happening? I don't understand why, why don't I understand anything on this page? <laughs> yeah. And that's very common with philosophy. That's very common. Uh, people will describe they've never had to read something more than once before. Mm -hmm. Maybe twice, maybe, but it's, it's not uncommon to have to read something three times and still mm -hmm. feel like you didn't, you're making progress, but you still don't get all of it. Or, or feeling like I got it. I got it. Nope. Lost it again. <laughs> I thought I had it. Or yeah, you had it for a moment and then it's gone. And this is gone. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you're trying to like, uh, I feel like it's like you're trying to like cold water in your fist. You're like, right. oh yeah, it's gone again. <laughs> well, that was a 60 some unit degree. Did you do it in two years? How long did it take you to do it? I did it in two and a half, uh, almost three. I, but one of the reasons was that uh, uh, Viola actually accepted a lot of my uh, theology courses from uh, Liberty uh, because this, uh, this tends to be pretty generic. Um, so I didn't have to take a few of the of the theology courses, so that helped. Um, okay. So yeah, um, well, that's yeah. that's pretty close to. I mean, that is a lot of work. I cannot imagine trying to do that. Did you take metaphysics and epistemology the same semester? The, the no, first? I did not. Okay. I, I thank, thank goodness. Um, that 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 would have been. Uh, but no, I think I I, I took metaphysics. Um, I think, I think that was the one semester where I only took one philosophy course. I think they recommended that. They said, listen, don't do more than one philosophy course your first semester. You're, you're, you're going to die. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I only did metaphysics. The following semester, then I took epistemology and philosophy of mind at the same time. Wow. Okay. Who did you have epistemology with? Uh, Guided. That's, <laughs> that's where we met. That's where we met. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So that yeah, would you, be you spring. for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I substitute spring 2016 spring of 2016. That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I must've come in and done some lectures for the epistemology mm -hmm. course. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We were in the new building. Is that right? And yeah. Yeah. Was, that was yep, a the fancy classroom. Building. Yeah. I didn't, I, I did not go to school in that building. I, I think it was the first time I was seeing the building. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was a, that was a fun time. Now, you are back in uh, New Jersey, right? You, you finished yep. your degree. Uh, and now you're working on Christian fiction. Yeah. This is very interesting because I've had, you're the second novelist. Would you say you're a novelist? I, I, I guess I am. It's, it's one of those things where I have like massive imposter syndrome. But <laughs> technically, yeah, I've written some novels, so I guess I'm a novelist. Yeah. <laughs> You're the second novelist we've had on, and we hope to have many more on. But uh, this is exciting because you're a published novelist. It's awesome. Um, but before we get there, mm -hmm. what was your favorite course at Talbot in the Ooh. philosophy program? Hmm, my favorite course. Um. You know, I, 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 I would have to say, can we make it two favorites? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, can it's you, do, can you do a runner up? Can, is there enough distinction? 
Well, because they're so different. That's the thing. Because I, I for it this way, I have a favorite philosophy class, and then I have a favorite non-philosophy class. Yeah, so, so that's that two way. different categories. So two different categories. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one um, one is uh one is the uh the uh, hundred yard dash, and the other one is the uh, four hundred relay. Yeah. So uh, for philosophy, uh, I think it was philosophy of mind. Um, and I actually took uh, two semesters of that. Um, so they, that year they, uh, they introduced uh, an advanced philosophy of mind. And uh, like, I love the first one, but the second one, which just went so much deeper and it was, it was great. Uh, what was the second kind of, one called? It was just called advanced philosophy of mind. Oh, okay. um, and it was just a, a lot more reading, getting uh, deeper into uh, the different arguments, uh, uh, especially even the, the different uh, uh, alternative viewpoints, you know, like, you know, animalism and, you know, the different kinds of, you know, the, uh, non-reductive physicalism and things like that. Okay. Um, so kind of seeing wh where people are coming from, you know, uh, why the thinking through how the dualist position, uh, 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 you know, matches up against these things. Um, uh, you know, again, because it, it went back to my original reason for wanting to study. Okay, so I've been taught all my life, like, all right, there's a soul. Okay, but, you know, are, are there some robust arguments to, for believing there's a soul? Right? Uh, is it just... Yeah, let's, uh, uh, let's, let's uh, unpack that a little bit just so people can follow philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. It sounds a little squirrely. Sounds really <laughs> esoteric if you've never heard the term before. Uh, of course, people might have no idea what you mean by metaphysics, uh, but mm -hmm. so so philosophy and, and then mind, this word dualism maybe get at that. Sure. So philosophy of mind is basically uh, it's just a, a term for the study of of uh, philosophical study of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. uh, of thinking through what is consciousness, right? Uh, what do we mean by saying that someone is conscious or something is conscious? Uh, you know. Um, how, how do we uh, think about this? And uh, the traditional view uh, uh, for, you know, religious people, and, and actually, uh, I think the default view for humans, uh, if uh, we look at a lot, a lot of uh, polls that have been done, is that we're, we have, a, have this body, but we're something in addition to that. Yeah. There's, there seems to be something more, right? right? Uh, uh, you know, I believe there's been studies done with the vast children all over the world, uh, uh, if they think that they could survive the death of their body. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, universally, the answer is yes, uh, across different religions and cultures. So that we seem to have an intuition that yeah. we might be just more than just, you know, a, a, a bag of meat and bones. Right. Um, we certainly think of ourselves that way. I sure. Think. Yeah. Uh, it it seems to be a default position. We don't always position. talk that way, but yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So then philosophy of mind is, is kind of getting at that. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if we are something else, well, what kinds... What kind of other thing would we be? Mm -hmm. um, is that all we are? Is, is there are we? Is there like some little guy driving a little uh, body around, <laughs> or is there some some more uh, tightly coupled relationship between whatever this other thing might be and this body? Because um, it seems that you know, obviously, I can see my body, I can touch it, I'm, I'm, uh, but uh, I seem to be directly aware of things that aren't just my body. Like I have these things that we call thoughts and feelings and. Uh, you know, emotions and sensations, and it seems that they're not exactly the same thing as my body. Um, you know, we think about the, you know, the brain, or well, is the brain your mind, or is the brain something in addition to your mind? Uh, so it's it, kind of those kinds of questions that get asked in, in uh, philosophy of mind.
yeah, that was my that's favorite great. philosophy that's course. Great. That's great. I, I, I'm with you on all of that. Are so you're a dualist, would you say? Yeah, definitely. Definitely a dualist of sorts. Uh, so there's, you, a, there's a lot yeah. of different uh, nuances there. <laughs> that yeah, that's right. Make. That's right. At, at the basic uh, level, though, with with uh, uh, the position of dualism is that you're not the same thing as your body. Yeah, you're not identical you're something to your body. Else. Yeah, you're something else that's not physical. Mm-hmm. Is that, would you say that's fair? Uh, uh, sort of, yes. I mean, uh, I think the, have a body. I, I hope you have a body, exactly. And I think that there's a, a, a close, very tightly coupled relationship between your body and your this immaterial part of you yeah um such that i don't think that you you're probably fully human without a body mm-hmm. i think that to be human is to be embodied but okay. certainly what holds your identity like yourself isn't your body right is is this other thing right? okay. we, normally we use the word soul for this uh immaterial part there's a bunch of terms you could use to, to kind of cash this out but certainly we're not just this meat bag right there's something else there Right. So you can survive the death of your body. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's the thing that survives really is you. Mm-hmm. So you're designed to have a body. So obviously God doesn't want you to be permanently disembodied, but mm-hmm. whatever you is, is, is still there after mm-hmm. death. Exactly. So there's obviously p- apologetic significance to this because yeah, definitely. a lot of people think that when you're, di- when you die, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least they pretend to think that I'm not sure they really do, but what's the expression is uh, there's no atheists in foxholes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, um, I think a lot of people convince themselves that they really do believe that, but um you know, death is mysterious and mm-hmm. um, it seems to be very common, almost a built in view that that this is not this world is not all there is. So mm-hmm. obviously the um, what happens after death and and can you know anything about that and what and, and can, is there anything you can do to. To live after death, uh, that that's been a major human concern for a long time and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of discussion it's interesting um to me that that uh our public schools don't pay much attention to that at all like at least some views i think the, a lot of the public schools just assume a materialist view and then if you want to tack on something supernatural on your own time you know that's what church is for or synagogue mm-hmm. or something like that and uh but you know as far as on class time you know we're going to teach you like kind of materialistic metaphysics um not that we know what the term metaphysics yeah. means yeah yeah it's 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 it, there's a lot to talk about there with that that, that that could be a whole discussion of a whole other podcast <laughs> okay but um yeah yeah but I, I would well, say did that, you want to indicate did you want to indicate briefly what you before you talk about your fiction what what mm-hmm. uh you want to indicate what you meant by that? There's sure. Uh, more there. Uh, so my my, uh, my children have special needs. 
Um, so I've, I've always been involved in meetings with professor, with our teachers and uh, all kinds of therapists and looking at the type of work that's being done with them and the type of therapies that are being applied. And I remember uh, very early on seeing um, uh, just so a form that I was handing out, uh, that was handed to me on some of the things that were being done. And uh, it was literally some uh, work where it's basically done by Skinner um, that, and this kind of therapies that were you know, developed uh, in, but the basis was established by Skinner, who is, uh, you know, the quintessential kind of physicalist, right? He, he rejected the notion that we were anything other than just this bag of meat. And furthermore, he just thought that we were just kind of these input-output machines, right? We were just like this behavioral machines that you feed certain inputs, you're going to get certain outputs. There really wasn't anything other than that to human beings. So I, I found it fascinating that as I'm, you know, hearing these teachers tell me how they're going to employ these therapies for my children, which have utility, but I feel that it's so easy to ignore that that is not just all humans are, right? Uh, uh, that we are more than just these input-output machines. Uh, and, uh, and, and even going deeper into these things, into some of these areas where they'll, they'll acknowledge it, right? Uh, uh, you know, you have a behaviorist who will acknowledge like, yeah, there, there might be something else going on, but that's not, that's outside our purview. We don't even want to deal with that. We just kind of pretend like it's, it's not there. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that I, I have a lot to say about that as yeah. well. But, yeah. BF but, Skinner. Uh, the guy's name is BF Skinner. If you want to yeah. run that, that down. All right. So you got, uh, that, that's a that's incredible you have special needs kids are both of them special needs yeah oh wow. yeah they have different conditions one has down syndrome the other one has uh, he has adhd and a smattering of other minor conditions that's a lot to deal with <laughs> you know it's giving you people, lots of patience i guess yeah you know, people always note that but uh because both of my kids have special needs that's just normalcy for me uh-huh Right. It's not like okay. I had a kid that didn't have special needs. So I know what it is to not have a kid with social needs. I don't gotcha. know what that is. So it's kind of just like, well, that just is what it is to have kids for me. You know? Wow. I don't even know enough to ask any interesting or intelligent questions just because <laughs> I don't know enough. I'm not leveled up on, mm -hmm. on what the, uh, what the issues that you deal with are and especially like in terms of education and just raising them. So it's, you know, it's very much the same as, as any other parent. I have the very much the same concerns as any other parent, you know, making sure that they don't grow up to be a uh, little turds. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it's the it's, concerns are very similar. Obviously there's going to be some additional concerns. Uh, some You're saying there's still there's still the sin nature of, of the kids. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> there's still original sin. <laughs> Absolutely, I saw it from day one. It's Is like right? you know, uh, 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 yeah. I I I was very quickly uh, dissuaded from any notion that my kid was anything other than a low down dirty sinner, just like I was. <laughs> in need of a savior. Absolutely. Obviously, that's uh, forefront in your mind. Is how do you make sure that they hear the gospel mm -hmm. clearly and can take it in and respond. And you'd be surprised. My kids have asked me very piercing questions throughout mm -hmm. the years, just from listening from things in Sunday school. And they've come up to me, you know, my, you know, both of them and asked me questions like, okay, where, where did God come from? Uh, 
you know, <laughs> uh, where Jesus is in heaven too, and Jesus is God. How is that possible? Mm. These are questions that have come up for them, uh, where I'm like, these these are questions that typical kids are asking, and and my kids who have special needs have heard enough, and it's crystallized enough where they're able to uh, think about these things and ask the questions. So that has been encouraging for me. Do they have? Uh, are they responsive to the gospel? Have you, you shared um, that obviously with them? Yeah, I've shared that with them. Uh, they're definitely, I mean, they love going to church. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if for church's sake or for other <laughs> reasons, but yeah, they're definitely, it's, it's definitely a social experience for them, uh, which just, church just is like everybody else. Yeah, just like everybody else in 2000. Um, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I try to uh, live the gospel, I think, as mm -hmm. best as I can within, within my limited and uh, broken self uh and hope that they, they obviously can see it through me as well as as the things that i can teach them within their capacity to understand yeah now do they like fiction they do, do your kids uh, like fiction was yeah, that a re that was that part of the interest you had in writing christian fiction so no it actually didn't come from my kids because it's the books are way beyond where they would be um so so to finish answering the question we had talked about before, my second favorite course, and I'll, I'll segue into why I started writing, okay. Okay. it was actually spiritual formation. Um, and uh, dealing, and, and, and I know people had varied experiences with, with that class, but one of the things that really impacted me was dealing, thinking about power and how Christians have used power uh, throughout, uh, you know, with their own church experience and both uh, at, at a leadership level and as, as a, at a personal level and what Christian power looks like. And uh, I remember I, I shared this with my best friend, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff, like I would get it, basically I would hear the lecture and then I would like regurgitate the lecture to my friend. Uh, so he kind of got the, he kind of, he got the degree vicariously <laughs> through me as well. Is this your um, co-author? Yeah, it's my co-author. This is Gam Rodriguez. Gam Rodriguez. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I remember you thinking through these things and you know, around a few years back, uh, I want to say maybe four years ago, uh, you know, he, he comes up to me and we'd always talked about what would it look like to write a story where we could kind of uh, wrap in a lot of these themes uh, of, of things that we've experienced growing up. Uh, uh, and then some of these things that, you know, that we've been learning. And he actually got started on one. He got started on the story. And he brought me in and he says, hey, listen, could, could you help me kind of edit this thing? I, I actually wrote this thing out and I need some help. So I sat down with him. I said, sure. I was actually done with class, with school at the time. Um, so I said, I graduated in, in 2018. Um, so I said, sure, let, let's, uh, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's uh, get to it. So I remember sitting down with him and we literally worked through the entire book and we kind of rewrote it in, in some ways, like the, the whole skeleton stayed there, but we just kind of reworked a lot of things and, and uh, added a lot of things to kind of expand, do a lot of world building. Um, and I remember when we, when we finally finished, uh, you know, he, he you know, uh, saved the, the, we were doing that on a Word document that we would, you know, that we shared so we could both make changes. He was in New Jersey, I was in California. And um, I, I, when I look at the top, he said, oh, by the way, make sure you look at the, the heading and I look at the heading and he, he wrote his name and then he wrote my name right after it as an author. Uh, he says, look, you've worked with this as, you know, uh, with me, uh, we've, you've gone over every word, every line of this book as much as I have. So you're, 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 you're a co-author with me. Um, so we, we started the process of trying to get published. Um, 
and we, you know, we uh, uh, submitted to a bunch of literary agents, and uh, we looked at any publishers who would accepted direct uh, uh, submissions as well, and we just kept getting no's, right, and uh, just got tons of rejections, or even worse, most of the time they don't even get back to you, so you don't mm -hmm. even know, right? You're just like, yeah. I guess, I guess it's a no. It's been three months, right? Um, we we even tried, for example, uh, uh, competitions that there are for like new authors to try to help you connect with like uh, published authors to help you uh, work on, on your manuscripts. And so we, so nothing would work. We tried, uh, we tried to do uh, Christian publishing companies, uh, but, uh, and I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be careful here. <laughs> this, right? be uh, truthful. It was our experience be that truthful. Christian publishing companies are looking for a very specific kind of content, which is very much like a, uh, stories that are kind of like very much have this come to Jesus moment. They're very kind of like uh, they're hallmarky, if, I, if that makes sense. They're like the hallmark movie version of Christian of stories, where everything is just very neatly wrapped up in a bow. Uh, it's very kind of. Uh, well, that's what real life is like, though, right, Daniel? Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, that's what know, uh, Venezuela is like. I mean, look how absolutely. nice that was. Look absolutely. how look at America. That's how we are. <laughs> Yeah, it's all nice That's and neat, and is. at the end of the day, you have a little theme song, and everyone's happy. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the yeah, the Christian publishers turned to, to want that sort of story, so it, it wasn't a good fit for us with the Christian publishers. And I think for the non-Christian publishers, it, it was too religious, so we were just kind of wow. stuck in the middle. That's amazing. Uh, so we were kind of, we were we were kind of about to give up on the whole publishing route, and we were saying, well, maybe we will just self-publish it. Um, I remember we we got one response. And we were like, oh, okay. So we have this meeting and this person's like, oh, your book is amazing. Your book is awesome. Oh, we can't wait to publish it. And we're like, oh my God, this is great. And they're like, you just have to pay us this amount. We're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it was like this vanity uh, press, you know? Sorry. And we're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not spending money, whatever. Yeah. So we were just about to give up on the whole thing. And, and finally, like there was this company that comes around that, that we find, my, I think my, my, you know, my friend found, and they were asking for submissions and we you know, were like, at this point, we're, we don't have very high hopes for this, but we submit. And uh, once the submission uh, goes out, we, we hear back and they're like, we want to meet with you guys. And we're like, mm, probably another vanity price. There's no way. So we get to talking and yeah, it turns out to be a real publisher and they liked our book. And uh, they said, we have some feedback. We have uh, part of the team. And so we have beta readers. We have uh, editors, we have all these things that are going to work. We have artists that are going to create everything. Uh, you know, you just need to, you know, these are, these are, you know, we have a contract, we have all these things, and we want to sign you for three books. So we had only done one book. So we want to sign you for three books. We, we like to publish, uh, especially new authors, we like to publish in a quick release cycle, get your stuff out there, and for you to have multiple books. So we said, okay. So we get some feedback, and the feedback, we, we think, man, this has ripped our book apart. But it helped us grow as authors. And we had to you know, go back and rework a bunch of stuff. We had a bunch of plot holes. Mm. Uh, but it made it, I think it, it helped our story come along. And one of the things that we really wanted to do is we wanted to tell a story uh, that was interesting in itself, aside from the message or any themes that we wanted to touch on. Because I think what happens with a lot of Christian fiction and Christian fantasy is that the message takes the forefront, which it's very important, it's vital. But often it does so at the cost of the artistry, right? At the cost of the actual storytelling. So you end up with a, an amazing message, a very clear presentation of the gospel. 
and it's like some campy, silly story that just mm-hmm. uh, it has it lacks universal appeal. And we wanted this our story to have universal appeal. Obviously, not comparing ourselves at all to these people like these, right? These are masters of their craft, but so, sort of like C.S. Lewis or or like J.R. Tolkien, right? Who their stories have that universal appeal, even though they're deeply grounded within their Christian worldview, and and the themes that are 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 uh, dealt with are, are very much Christian themes. They could still have this universal appeal where someone can enjoy the story as a, just a good story. And that's right. something that we wanted to do. Um, and also we wanted to write Christian fantasy that kind of walked through an interesting edge, which was it's set in modern times, but it's set in a, kind of a world with an alternative history. So we, it, it's what's kind of the like genre a, again? Say it again. So the, uh, the genre is urban fantasy. So urban it, fantasy. Okay. Yeah. So it's fantasy. So as opposed to something like high fantasy, high fantasy is you're talking about like elves and orcs and, uh, and, you know, magic and uh, usually like a medieval type setting. Uh, so urban fantasy <laughs> is, is set in, uh, in modern times, but it ha- it's going to have some type of fantastical element to it. Uh, so our, our kind of story is set in, in modern times, and as we're both Hispanic, it, 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 uh, the main protagonist is a 21-year-old Latina from the Bronx. Um, How do you know Gam? So me and Gam have known each other since we were nine years old. Well, since I was nine years old. He's a couple years older than me. In New Jersey? Uh, so in New Jersey. So he was actually part of the church that my dad went to pastor when okay. I was uh, nine years old. So uh, we've known each other you know, Spanish, most of Spanish our lives. Spanish speaker? Yeah, Spanish speaker. Uh, you know, he was born also in Puerto Dominican? Rico. Okay. No, he's born in Puerto Rico, uh, oh. but you know, was raised here. Um, so yeah, we've known each other most of our lives. We've been friends for a very, very long time. Cool. So the okay, you're telling me about the the main character is uh, Latina from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the Bronx. Um, and uh, you know, is her name world... AOC by chance? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, the, the first initial is A. Her name is Angelica. Uh, but um, basically, we, we told let's tell a story in an alternate universe, so to speak, right? It's like a what if. Well, what if reality was had been this way? And uh, we, we drew from heavily from the story of, of uh, the Nephilim from the Book of Enoch. Uh, and we, which for those who might not know, that's uh, some it's a apocryphal writing that uh, suggests that um, you know there were angels who had uh, relations with human women, and they had these children who were hybrids, uh, you know, half angel, half human. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, some fanciful writing, but we kind of said, well, what if that was true? And what if that had been going on in the background of history throughout all of history? And a lot of notable characters throughout history had been these types of, uh, of hybrids. And what would that look like in today's world in a modern setting with this kind of hidden sort of uh, thing happening in the background? Wow. And, um, and one of the things, like I said, we wanted to touch on the notion of power. Um, and, and so one of the things we, we, we did in the book was, uh, borrowing from the Book of Enoch, we, we took the whole concept that this, these Nephilim were mighty beings who had uh, kind of like superpowers. Um, but we noted that in, in the writings of Enoch and those things, they never talked about female Nephilim. They only talked about male Nephilim. So we thought, well, we thought, well what about if there were uh, a female offspring? What would that be like? Um, and one of the things we thought about, well, what if they don't have the same kinds of powers? And because of that, their fathers would have rejected them, but they actually become sort of like the saviors of humanity, hmm. uh, because what they can do is oppose their, uh, their brothers, in a sense, and kind of fight for the sake of humanity. 
So what does it look like uh, when we think about a challenge of, of how we think about martial might and power, uh, obviously, um, and, and how victory doesn't always come through the greatest martial might, true victory, uh, and how that's reflected, obviously, in the Christian story, how in the Christian story, you know, the weak are the strong, the poor call themselves rich, life comes through death, you know, uh, those who want to gain their life or lose it, but those who lose their lives for the sake of Christ will gain it. So the kind of inversion of uh, what we might think is, as intuitive when it comes to power, how that's played out in Christian story, we try to kind of uh, develop that through our themes in, in these books. Wow. That's very thoughtful. Um, now, I don't want to give you, I don't want any spoiler alerts, but <laughs> there's no pictures in this, right? Uh, there's a picture on the cover, but there there's are no picture pictures the in the book. <laughs> How did you get the picture for the cover? So we worked with an amazing artist. Uh, uh, I think uh, she's based out of Eastern Europe somewhere. And she does work for the publishing company that we, uh, we signed up with. Um, and, you know, we worked with her and we kind of told her the ideas that we had. Um, and she just kept, uh, she kept uh, coming up with uh, concepts until we kind of met in between and found like this really great concept. And um, we're really happy with the artwork she was able to come up with throw a title out there for me i'm going to look on amazon yeah. sure yeah it's on amazon uh the name of the series is called the progeny wars uh the progeny wars uh the name of the first book is called daughters of the watchers uh we've written three books so far so we've written daughters of the watchers sons of the lords and the children of men and uh, our publisher was uh happy with how the books have sold so far so they actually uh signed us up to uh, uh round out the series with three more books uh yep this is uh the first book daughters of the watchers uh, yeah. So you see there, um, my pen name is DJ Vargas, and you see, you can see my picture there on the bottom left. Um, there you are. There I am. And there's uh, GZ <laughs> and there's Rodriguez. Okay. Yeah, cool. there's Gam. Um, and uh, yeah, so we have uh, the three books. That's cool. Uh, Children of the Mortals, rather, is uh, the, the name of the, uh, I forgot, Children of Men was actually the name of a, of a movie. <laughs> uh, wow. Children of the Mortals. Um, and we're working on four more books. Oh, th sorry, three more books. So we're working on book four right now. Uh, and hopefully we should have we should have it done by the end of this month and hopefully it should be published soon so um cool. yeah uh if you're interested in, in christian fiction and fantasy books um just you know for leisure reading or just to uh look at some of the themes that we uh developed throughout the books it'll definitely you know be great uh, to, for you to give it a try it's available on in kindle unlimited for those who have this subscription to kindle unlimited it's a free read so if you already wow. have the subscription you can pick it up and read it this looks like a lot of work, man. You you were obviously very dedicated to this. That's awesome. It took us quite a while to, to do this book. Yeah, the first one yeah. took us a uh, you know, good year and a half. Uh, I, to, love the, I love what you said about martial power, the reflection on that. I mean, part of how I know you and I got permission to share this. So, don't, but mm -hmm. was it is that the gun range? You and me went shooting. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think. Uh, I kind of uh, walked you through uh, picking out your first pistol here in California. Was that, is yep. that fair to say? Yeah, it was the first time I shot a gun. So <laughs> you got a CZ. Yep. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, that's yep. a good, that's a good, I love the CZ. It's a checkmate pistol. So, yeah, I mean, you, you've obviously thought you, you've had a gun in your hands. Uh, mm -hmm. You value legal self-defense. Uh, mm -hmm. And so the reflection on martial might and power from a Christian perspective uh, sounds very interesting. Obviously, your co-author, 
has the same concerns that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, is he yeah. is he pro Second Amendment as well, Gam? Um, yeah, I don't. He doesn't. I don't think he owns any guns, but I, I think he's you know he's, he's definitely pro you know legal self defense. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so you're not take you're not coming at this from a pacifistic uh, perspective necessarily. No. Okay. And we do deal with some of these themes. Like we we I, I brought in a lot of my uh, theological training, a lot of my philosophical training, and asking some of these tough questions. Like, well, you know, what does it look like uh, uh, to uh, oppose evil? What does it mm-hmm. look like to um, resist? You know, we actually even bring up some discussions on uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, in the book, mm-hmm. you know, oh, uh, and, cool. and, and kind of thinking to those things within the, this, the weaving of the story, um, you know, absolutely, uh, we're not pontificating. All right. I think uh, we, we try to make it uh, interesting, but kind of uh, involving these themes in the in the book. So Angelica, this is Angelica here uh, yeah. on the screen. OK, mm-hmm. so she's Latina from the Bronx. You said it yep. was an alternative history. Mm-hmm. But obviously, a place like the Bronx exists. Is it exactly? Sim- it's an alternative it- history, but but it's uh, it's still kind of like you can recognize uh, the Bronx. Like, exactly, you can okay, recognize most of the world looks similar. almost exactly the same. It's just that there's been this hidden sort of war happening behind the scenes. Interesting, you know, uh, uh, for for control of humanity. Um, there's a there's something behind her there. Yeah, there's a, a dark shadow behind her, a figure, and that's a figure you get to know in the book and how it's related to her. And how she uh, uh, is related to uh, all of these uh, uh, kind of the secret war that's happening in, in the background. So it's not like The Walking Dead or something where it just goes nowhere. There's is there no, a redemptive <laughs> arc? Is there a redemptive arc? There in... is, uh, okay. uh, and but there it's it's very character driven. So there's redemptive arcs within our characters. We deal with a lot of concepts. We deal with the concepts of, of what friendship looks like, what forgiveness looks like, and doesn't look like. Uh, um, you know, we try to really look at these uh, themes deeply uh, and thoughtfully and, and, and without kind of insulting the reader and just like, giving them like just easy answers. Uh, there's some questions that we actually leave open and say, yeah, this is hard. You know, just, this is something you have to think through. And this is uh, written for adults or would you say? Yeah, it's a teenagers? young adult. Yeah, okay, young adult young to, adult. to adults, uh, you know, maybe mature teenagers. Uh, we, we purposely avoided like, uh, you know, four letter words. Uh, to you know, make it more accessible. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, there's some violence. What like rating there, is so. it? What rating is it? G or? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say it was G. It's probably PG thirteen. Uh, PG thirteen. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cool. Well, Dan, uh, we know that you are on a hard stop here. We gotta yeah. let you go. We are so grateful for you coming on and talking about it, uh, your fiction and your background, and maybe parents or across the land or young people in college interested in checking out your fantasy books we'll uh check it out and give you some give you some sales that'd be great that'd be, we yeah. appreciate every single one even, even a single one is it's uh, amazing thank you so much dan is a solid guy i know him personally he's got a really great educational background um, i've been to the shooting range with him he's a solid guy uh, wonderful backstory um so wonderful family Obviously, uh, he's uh, working on this fiction with Gam. I'm not sure who Gam is, uh, besides what Dan has said, but he's if he's friends with Dan, he's got to be an amazing guy. <laughs> and we're really happy that you came on the, the podcast to give us thank our second so episode on on uh, fiction. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast.